Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Support for the California Report comes from Barracuda Networks. Cloud generation firewalls engineered for today's modern globally dispersed networks. Learn more at barracuda.com slash firewalls. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. And by Paint Care. Through Paint Care, paint manufacturers make it easier for households and businesses to recycle leftover house paint, with over 800 convenient drop-off locations around California. On today's California Report magazine, long before the Me Too movement, women janitors were speaking up about harassment and rape in the buildings they clean. We hear how one janitor's life has transformed as she's learned to fight back. Before, I was afraid of my own shadow. I'm not afraid of anything anymore. Plus, the unique friendship between Johnny Cash and an inmate at Folsom Prison. Oh, I think it was just a country boy thing. When you see a buddy down in the ditch, you stick out your hand. They helped each other. I think they shored each other up. And a football rivalry between two Fresno brothers vying for a spot in the Super Bowl. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. When I first met a janitor named Georgina Hernandez, she could barely make eye contact with me. She was timid, teary-eyed. She had worked at a hotel where she cleaned the lobby, and she filed a lawsuit that said she was raped on the job by her supervisor. She was a single mom supporting her children. When you need the job, you become a victim by not having the courage to say no. And if you say no, you're going to lose your job. I didn't have someone to tell or anyone I could trust. Today, she's a different person. No! 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 It's amazing, nearly three years later, to see Georgina confidently leading other women janitors in a self-defense class in downtown Los Angeles. They form a circle and practice how to shout no to fend off an attacker. Uno, dos, tres. No! 
Georgina's got a big grin on her face as she shows the other women how to make a fist to punch someone in the nose. They're practicing on these big, muscled mannequins dressed in red T-shirts. The plastic faces have these menacing expressions. Georgina digs her thumbs into the mannequin's eye sockets, and I ask her how it feels. She bangs her fist and says, Good, I'm mad. I wish I could do it for real. Her dark ponytail swings as she kicks a plastic mat hard, practicing how to aim for an attacker's testicles. Part of the exercise is learning how to even say that word. Oh, maybe that's it, though. Come on. My life is new. I almost don't even recognize myself. Now I'm confident in myself. I'm not afraid. Before, I was afraid of my own shadow. I'm not afraid of anything anymore. I first met Georgina in 2015, along with my reporting partners from Reveal and the investigative reporting program at UC Berkeley. Long before the Me Too movement, inspired by powerful women in Hollywood and politics, we spent a year and a half investigating how immigrant janitors like Georgina are particularly vulnerable to sexual violence. We produced a series of radio stories and articles, plus a frontline documentary we called Rape on the Night Shift. Tonight on Frontline, they are the women who come to clean as you go home for the night. He closed the door and he said to me, nobody will know about this. Nobody will believe you. Many undocumented. These workers don't understand their right to be free from any violence. And many abused. When that film came out in Spanish on Univision, it was screened for janitors across California. After many of those screenings, women stood up and told their stories. And then Georgina became part of a campaign called Ya Basta, which in Spanish means enough is enough. They protested in the streets and put up billboards across the Bay Area saying, end rape on the night shift. They even got a law passed to protect women janitors. California Assembly member Lorena Gonzalez-Fletcher was the sponsor. To shine a light on this industry and make sure that we hold building owners responsible for the abuses. The new law requires sexual harassment training for all janitors and their supervisors. Companies who don't comply can't do business in California. Janitors from around the state, including Georgina, held a five-day hunger strike outside the state capitol to urge the governor to sign the bill. When he did, the women cheered and collapsed into a giant hug. (laughs) Georgina realized that by telling her story, she had power. She could help change California law. I'm proud that women are standing up, aren't scared, and are brave to talk about what happened to them. It hurts. It makes you angry. But you have to break the silence. You can't be embarrassed. It's not your fault. It's happened to lots of women, not just one or two, but thousands are behind me, speaking up. Maybe our world as immigrant women will change. 
Today, Georgina is still working nights and early mornings as a janitor. But now she says she knows her rights, and the self-defense classes have helped her feel like she knows how to fight back. Uno, dos, tres. No! No! She says the idea is to take what she's learning to the buildings where other women are cleaning and train them during their meal breaks. I know they're not going to come to us. We have to go to them. Once we teach one of them, it's like a chain. And they all learn their rights and how to defend themselves, learn how to stay alert if some wolf tries to get close to them. And she wants people to know janitors like her have been speaking up about harassment before anyone had heard of the Me Too movement. I'm sad and angry. Those women have money, they're powerful, they have everything in life that I don't have. I'm proud of them for speaking up, but who listened to me? Nobody. These are important women, but I'm important, too. If you missed those first stories with Georgina and the other women janitors talking about the abuse, we've got them online at californiareport.org. And I'll be talking more about what's changed for the women with an update to Rape on the Night Shift on Reveal, the radio program and podcast from the Center for Investigative Reporting. You can watch the film, too, at Frontline.org. But the story's not over. My colleague Bernice Yurung from Reveal has a book coming out in May based on our reporting, and it's got a lot more about Georgina's story. It's called In a Day's Work, The Fight to End Sexual Violence Against America's Most Vulnerable Workers. Tune in Monday as the California Report's morning show goes beyond Me Too to begin some conversations about sex and consent, power and masculinity, and the possibility of redemption. That's Monday morning on the California Report's morning show with John Sepulveda. Fifty years ago this month, Johnny Cash performed at a prison in Folsom, northeast of Sacramento, to a captive audience of a thousand convicts. The recording of that show, live at Folsom Prison, went on to become a landmark album. But Johnny Cash's connection with Folsom went far beyond a triple platinum release. At the prison, he met Glenn Shirley, a career criminal and jailhouse songwriter. As Peter Gilstrap tells us, that friendship forged in California would have a profound effect on both men. Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. It's the morning of January 18, 1968. Johnny Cash is on stage under the raw fluorescent lights in mess hall number two at Folsom Prison, giving the convicts what they want. Folsom Prison Blues, dark as a dungeon, I still miss someone, and send a picture of mother. Standing tall up there dressed in black, sweat rolling down his cheek, Cash squints through the choking haze of cigarette smoke at a prisoner in the front row with a chiseled face, a high pompadour, and a Pall Mall dangling from his mouth. 
Glenn Shirley has no idea what's about to happen. He has no idea his life is about to change forever. This song was written by our friend Glenn Shirley. Hope we do your song justice, Glenn. We're going to do our best. So how did California state convict A59795C, a repeat offender doing a life sentence for armed robbery, how did this guy write a song that ended up on one of the most revered albums ever? Inside the walls of prison, my body may be, but my Lord has set my soul free. Inside the walls of prison, my body may be, but my Lord has set my soul free. The answer begins with a prison-made demo. There's a gray stone chapel. You're hearing what Cash himself heard the night before the show. It's Shirley's unreleased take of Greystone Chapel, recorded on reel-to-reel tape by a convicted murderer and fellow inmate in the small granite chapel the song is named for. If you took the Glenn Shirley component out of that record, there'd be a big hole. That's country musician Marty Stewart. He played with Cash in the 80s and met Shirley many years ago. To me, that was kind of the heart of that record. That was a great gesture but it was also a great song and a deserving song, you know. But that was kind of the centerpiece of that record to me. Cash played two sets at Folsom that day and closed both with Greystone Chapel. It was a crowd pleaser. It put the spotlight on a humble prisoner and would be savvy promo for the release. Most artists would have left it at that, but Johnny Cash was not most artists. By 68, he was getting a handle on his years of drug and alcohol abuse, resurrecting his career, and renewing his deep faith in the Lord. When he met Glenn Shirley, Cash was meeting a kindred spirit, a darker version of himself, had he made slightly different life choices. Oh, I think it was just a country boy thing. I think it was just a southern boy thing. You see a buddy down in the ditch, you stick up your hand, and you stick out your hand. But it, they helped each other. I think they shored each other up. And again, I think it was the best of intentions. Cash was finding salvation. Now, with the help of God in Nashville, he was going to save Glenn Shirley, too. I was born in Stigler, Oklahoma, in 36. And I think it was 38, the latter part of 38, when the whole family moved to California, you know. In his teens, Shirley started getting in trouble with the law. He developed lifelong drug and alcohol addictions. And despite a dedicated wife and two young children, by 1960, he would be in and out of prison for most of the next decade. So what went wrong? What was the problem? I've asked myself that a lot of times because if you knew my grandmother and his brothers and sisters, they were all hardworking people. They were all very responsible, very honest people. That's Rhonda Shirley. She's a retired Tennessee state trooper and Glenn's daughter. I guess that's something you, you don't really figure out. That was just something in him. Shirley was not a criminal mastermind. He'd get loaded and impulsive and once robbed a Burbank ice cream company of 28 bucks using a toy gun. In his brief moments of civilian life, he'd been a shade tree guitarist at best, strumming chords along with the radio. But with all that time to kill behind bars, Shirley began writing songs. You can't cage the mind of a dreamer. You've got to do something in, in prison. Or go insane. You know, like you can do it gambling, you can do it hustling, you can do it shooting narcotics or, or taking pills. But you got to have something going 
to let you face that next day. No one would have heard any of those sanity-preserving tunes without the divine intervention of Reverend Floyd Gresset. He was a visiting prison chaplain. On the outside, he had a church in Ventura, and Johnny Cash was a member. During Cash's rehearsal the night before the show, Gresset dropped by and delivered a tape of a song straight from prison. There's a gray stone chapel after his triumphant performance at Folsom, the man in black was on a mission to set Shirley free. He stepped in with connections that included Governor Ronald Reagan and Reverend Billy Graham. He got Shirley transferred to the minimum security prison at Vacaville. Cash also got him a record deal. It was that messianic complex thing kicking into high gear. I'm going to save this guy and process save myself. That's Nashville pedal steel master Lloyd Green. He was one of the session players imported from Tennessee to back up Shirley on his self-named album, recorded live in Vacaville while he was still doing time. During the show, I was thinking about all the faces out there that I can see that I've been seeing for years in here now. Well, I got ten and a half years of this lockdown business, and I'm not proud of any of it, because every damn day hurt. Now, a lot of you got a lot more than that, but some of you got a lot less, because you're just starting. Well, for God's sake, for God's sake, man, don't let it take you no ten and a half years in here to get yourself together. In March of 1971, Glenn Shirley was paroled, free again. His album was released a few weeks later. Cash moved him down to Nashville, gave him a spot on his road show, and signed him to a publishing deal. But Shirley couldn't play the Nashville game. He tried for about a year and a half, but he couldn't adjust to life beyond a cell. His addictions kicked in, his behavior became unpredictable and dangerous, and when he threatened a band member, that was the last straw. Though it crushed him, finally Johnny Cash had to cut his friend loose. Again, Marty Stewart. This is a big statement, but to be turned out of the California penal system and to be put into the world of hillbilly show business, good old boy show business, there ain't a hell of a lot of difference in a lot of ways. It's one you just swap in jailhouses. Now I feel no fear as I sit here, though death is close at hand. And it's with bitter gall. Shirley drifted and drugged and lost touch with his family. His only goal left to stay out of prison. By 1978, just six years after his album was released, he was living in the cab of a truck on a cattle farm near Salinas. In May of that year, he took his own life at the age of 42. I've heard a lot of people say, well, do you think John should have taken more responsibility? Rhonda Shirley. He did his job. He gave him a job. He gave him a home. He was his friend. He gave him advice. But Dad was a grown man and chose to take it or not. So it was never John's job to guide my father through life. In the last five decades, the Johnny Cash Live at Folsom Prison album has sold more than three million copies. And Johnny Cash is still probably the most recognized name in country music. And Glenn Shirley? Now you know who he is, too. For the California Report, I'm Peter Gilstrap in Nashville. And to adhere that Christ is near on this my last day. And he would More of Peter's reporting on Glenn Shirley will be featured as part of a music documentary series presented by KCRW this spring. Hatchet, rope, or gun, and I don't care to end with prayer. 
You probably remember how back in 2015, a young white supremacist walked into a black church in Charleston, South Carolina, and murdered nine African Americans. Well, that was a life-changing day for a lot of people, including a white woman here in California named Lois Hambold. I mean, this is just beyond belief. It was horrendous. She's a historian, and the incident made her realize she wanted to do something to help the country heal deep racial divisions. So she co-founded a group in Oakland called White Awake. Now, with so much frank discussion on the national stage about racism and confronting bias, KQED's Farida Jabala Romero caught up with the group. After the Charleston mass shooting, Lois Humboldt noticed people were organizing on Facebook to protest and march. Humboldt is in her 70s. What can I do at this point in my life? I can't get out on the freeway and run from the cops. I mean, forget it, you know. I can't run that fast anymore. So she posted a note on a Facebook page. Would anyone want to start a study group on anti-racism for white people? White people have to be responsible for making a lot of changes. It's not just people of color who have to do the work. Rochelle Towers responded. She's a social worker. So many people of color have said, white people, educate yourselves. They put together their decades of knowledge and activism experience to create a class called White Awake. Has anybody here ever had somebody say that they were colorblind? Is that something you've experienced? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 20 women sat on folding chairs in a circle at a church in Oakland. Michaela Danik is a high school science teacher. Right, so it's like the privilege of being white that you can say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm colorblind, I don't think about race. They're reading um, so books kind of like Edward Baptist's The Half Has Never Been Told, Slavery and the Making of American Capitalism. And they're owning up to their own roles in contributing to racism today. I was a product of all the things I had learned. I hadn't examined myself. Towers shares a time when she recognized her own racism. As the supervisor of a young Latina intern, she didn't introduce her at a work event. When the intern confronted her about it afterwards, Towers realized she probably would have introduced a white intern. And I did what I did because I really didn't value her as a person of color. Also in the room is Shannon Reilly, a Berkeley teacher. She says she's taking the class to help her students of color succeed. I feel like white supremacy is a disease that we have, but we make other people sick. And it just feels like a responsibility to to be less of a participant in that. Really also wants to learn how to better prepare her adopted son for the world. He's black. As his parent, Really has become more aware of the hurtful experiences people of color can face. One time, when Really's son was two years old, Really's wife took him to the playground and came back crying. Saying she could see the white parents trying to keep their little children away from our son because they felt like he was playing too rough. And it was like, by then we, we knew it was coming. We didn't know it would happen before he could speak in full sentences. For parents and kids of color, this kind of thing can happen a lot, says James Taylor. He's a father of three. He says... He's frank with his kids about interacting with white people. If they are nice, you receive them as nice and you accept them as nice. But there's also the potential that they are one of those reactionary whites who can be racist and you have to be prepared for that. Taylor is also a professor of politics at the University of San Francisco. He gives Wide Awake credit for doing self-examination work. 
but questions how much of an impact groups like this one can have in the larger context of systemic racism in America. You would need radical, almost revolutionary transformation to bring about the kind of change that they're talking about. And you don't have the political will here. We, we, we don't agree around affirmative action. So how are we going to get to reparations or other forms of big idea reconciliations? Taylor says when unarmed black men are still being shot by police, an all-white reading group can seem more like a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. I can show you 150 years of good white intentioned efforts, and we still have Donald Trump in the White House. Michaela News gets it. She's a software engineer and says you have to start somewhere. And she has the unique opportunity of talking directly with Trump supporters and her family about race. She says White Awake helped her do that. They're right here. News pulls out a cheat sheet. Strategies from the class on how to talk to people you don't agree with. Do you carry these around in your bag? I do carry them around in my bag. Um, They're good when you're frustrated to just have something to look back at. It's steps like remembering to listen, ask questions, find common ground to bridge uncomfortable, even painful conversations. It's not that now all my family is convinced and I've, you know, I've won. We're not racist anymore. (laughs) But um, it no longer feels as frustrating. Like, I feel like I can't can't have these conversations without them immediately going nuclear. (laughs) She says fighting racism is a constant battle for black people. She wants to take some of that weight on her shoulders if she can. For the California Report, I'm Farida Javala-Romero in Oakland. If you're a football fan, you're probably excited for Sunday's matchup between the Philadelphia Eagles and the Minnesota Vikings, which will determine which team heads to the Super Bowl. But for one family in Fresno, it won't be so easy to pick a favorite. KQED's Katrina Schwartz takes us to the hometown of two brothers, now rivals, whose parents find themselves in a tricky position. Who should they root for? Marvin and Joanne Clark Kendricks live on a quiet street in Fresno's Tower District with their four dogs. The Kendricks are beaming with pride that their sons, both linebackers, have been hitting hard in the NFL. They'll be excited no matter who wins this weekend. One of them is going to the Super Bowl, so I'm blessed. Marvin's son, Michael Kendricks, plays for the Philadelphia Eagles, and his younger son, Eric, is a Viking. Marvin points to a shelf full of photos of them in his home. Both of them are good-looking boys. This Sunday's game will be both a party and a nail-biter for the Kendricks. Joanne, technically the boy's stepmother, says Marvin could barely hold it together during the final minutes of the Vikings' close win over the New Orleans Saints last Sunday. couldn't watch it. He was standing outside. I could see him lurking in the window. Then I saw my wife in the window doing the happy dance. When the Kendricks brothers go head-to-head, Joanne just hopes neither gets hurt. Marvin, on the other hand, lets his bias towards his younger son show. Well, you know, I, uh, I'm a little partial towards my, my baby boy, Eric, because he went to UCLA. That's my alma mater. Marvin was a running back for UCLA in his day. But just a few minutes later, he's changed his story. Maybe Michael deserves the win. But I'd like to see Michael 
go this time. Philly hasn't gone, and he's been in the league six years now. You know, he got less time left than Eric. Uh, Eric, I think their team is young enough where I think they'll be back again real soon. The couple plans to watch the game from home, but the boy's mother, Yvonne Thagan, who also lives in Fresno, wouldn't miss being at this matchup for the world. Well, I had kind of in my head known that it was going to come down to this, to this weekend where they would probably be playing each other. So she bought her ticket to the game in Philadelphia halfway through the Vikings-Saints game. And she knows exactly how she'll cheer this weekend. Go defense. (laughs) You can't go wrong that way. She's staying neutral. And Fagan says no matter what happens Sunday, she's looking forward to grabbing dinner with her boys after the Super Bowl. For the California Report, I'm Katrina Schwartz in Fresno. And that's the California Report magazine, a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our director is Susie Racho. Our technical producer is Seal Muller with additional engineering from Howard Gelman. Victoria Maulione is our senior editor. Our online producer is David Marks. And our social media producer is Miranda Leitzinger. Special thanks this week to Ryan Levy. Our team also includes Julia McAvoy, Ingrid Becker, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from the James Irvine Foundation, expanding economic and political opportunity for Californians who are working but struggling with poverty. More at Irvine.org. Block Construction, a builder committed to enhancing communities in the Bay Area and Central Coast. B-L-A-C-H dot com. Block Construction, together building greatness. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book, I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.